Matthew 13, verse 24. We'll be reading from there this morning. Last week we studied the first of several parables that Jesus has given to the multitudes. There are four parables that are given to the multitudes in this portion of Scripture. The other parables that he will speak later on in the chapter are given to his disciples privately. But in these first four, Jesus is talking specifically in parables to the multitude in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy where Isaiah had said that hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive. These are the words of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, speaking to the nation of Israel because they have blinded their own eyes and stuffed their own ears so they could not see and could not hear, then they would be unable to understand what God was saying to them. And this is a fulfillment of that prophecy that Isaiah had given. Jesus has said that specifically What he is now doing by speaking in parables is to show the truth of the prophet's words that were written some 750 years prior to his speaking these parables. A parable, if you remember, is something that is given with respect to something that people are familiar with. And it is... As the word parable means, it comes alongside that which they are familiar with and speaks some new truth to the people who are hearing. Now, the parable is designed purposely with the intent that some will indeed understand and apply and accept the reality of what the parable is speaking. But others will be confused by that same, very same word given in that parabolic form. So some will hear and receive. Some will hear and reject. And that was true then. It's still true today. But that first parable that Jesus gave, as we looked at last week, is a foundational parable for us because Jesus, in Mark's Gospel, he tells us specifically, because they were wondering, well, what does this parable mean? And Jesus said, don't you know? He said, how then can you understand all of the parables if you don't understand this one? Speaking of the parable that we looked at last time, the parable of the sowing of the seed. So what Jesus is implying to his disciples and to us is that we should understand something of what other parables are going to be saying by interpreting correctly what he has already said in a previous parable. We refer to a theological term that's simple. It's expositional constancy. And all of that means is that when you have a parable given by the Lord, there are terms that he uses in many of the other parables that will have the exact same meaning. For instance, in the parable of the sower of seed, the seed was the word of God. And so we should assume that when he speaks other parables that include the word seed, that he's referring to the same basic thought. And that is what we will see in our study today. The seed is the Word of God. The sower is Him, Jesus. He is the sower of the seed. Now, it can be also understood that the sower of the seed is anyone who proclaims a gospel message. A seed is being sown. And so we see that type extended to the church because we also are seeders or sowers of seed, rather not seeders. 
We're seedy, some of us, but that's a different story. Well, the sowing of the seed is done by those who are familiar with the Word of God. And in the case of the parables, of course, it's Jesus speaking of himself, sowing seed. But it is extended to those who are followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, who also are to sow. Paul tells us in one of the letters that Paul writes that some sow, some water, but God gives the increase. I believe it's in 1 Corinthians that he says these things. So there are various things that people of God need to consider as they seek to serve him. Are you a sower of seed? Then do the sowing that God has called you to sow. Are you one who waters? Then continue watering. You all know that if plants don't have water, they don't last very long. And in the middle of the summer, and we're approaching that time, it gets rather dry, doesn't it? So watering is so very, very important, as well as seed sowing. Seed sowing is done in the beginning, earlier days in the spring. The seed has time to die in the ground and then brings forth life. Paul talks about that in also 1 Corinthians when he talks about the resurrection. Remember in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul describes the fact that, you know, the seed must go into the ground and die. And when you throw the seed onto the ground, sometimes you don't know what it is that you're actually throwing out. You have some flowers, some herbs, a combination of seeds, and you're not even sure what those are going to be. But eventually you know that it will bring forth a crop. And it's not until the plant comes up that you are able to identify what that seed was. But the seed has to die in the ground, and when it does, it brings forth life. And that's, again, a picture of the resurrection. So there are many different pictures that we find in the Scriptures with regard to seed. But here, in these parables that Jesus is speaking, it is the very Word of God. That's the primary thing. Now, also, we found in that first parable... Reference to birds. The birds had come, according to Jesus in that first parable, to pluck up all the seed that had fallen on the hard soil. In that sense, then, the birds were considered to be evil because they were doing the work of Satan by taking away the Word of God so that those who would have heard it were not able to then receive it. So that parable tells us if expositional constancy is in play, that every mention of birds in parables from that point on would indicate something that is evil. And we'll see that as we move forward in our study today. Expositional constancy is a good thing to observe as you study the parables of our Lord. Because if you don't consider that kind of constancy, then you get all kinds of different varying interpretations of what Jesus is actually saying in these parables. And I submit to you that I don't know for certainty that I have it all correct. And there are many who would say the same thing with differing opinions in what I'm going to share with you here today. I think that they're probably not correct. They think that I'm probably not correct, but that's okay because I've got the mic. 
So here we are in the study of this second of these parables given to the multitudes. We start with verse 24 in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13, where he says this, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Oh, in the field? That's the world. That's constant throughout as well. So again, expositional constancy. Keep that in mind. He sowed the word, he, Jesus, the seed, the word, into his field, the world. Verse 25 says, But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. The word tares is kind of a strange word, and it's really something that you find in the Middle East in a plant known as the darnel. Darnel looks identical to wheat as it's growing. Very hard to determine the difference between the two. But the sower of the seed sowed good seed, we're told, and his servants have somewhere along the way discovered that there are other plants growing that were not planted by this owner of this land. And they begin to wonder, what's going on here? It tells us again in verse 25, while men slept, his enemy, the sower's enemy, came and sowed tares, or donnell, among the wheat and went his way. That's the enemy. Now, it's not, it's not a reference to birds. It's a reference to Satan. Verse 26 continues and says, But when the grain had sprouted and proved a crop, then the tears also appeared. So now they recognize something's wrong. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the servants said to him, Well, do you want us then to go and gather them up? The tares they're speaking of. To pluck up the tares so that the seed that was properly sown can have a chance to pollinate and, and grow into good wheat crops. His answer is this in verse 29. He said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. So there's a danger involved if you're doing any kind of weeding. You know this to be the fact that if the weed is growing next to a good plant, it's very hard to pull that weed without doing some degree of damage to the good plant. So you have to be careful. And, and there's so much that has been sown and so much that has been corrupted in this field that the danger exists that if you pull up the tares, then the wheat also will no longer survive. And so that's not a good thing. And so the Lord is saying in this parable that we need to be careful not to take up the tares from among the wheat. And that's an important concept. We'll get into that a little bit more later as we continue this study. But he says in verse 29, again, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. And that ends the parable. His disciples are scratching their head. They don't understand what is all of this about. They know that they're familiar with farming. They know what the seed that was planted will result in a good crop. They know all about weeds, but they don't know the purpose of what, all, all of what he has said here yet. 
It'll be later on, and we'll get to that, where they ask him privately, what did that all mean? And he will tell them. And that's good, because again, when Jesus gives an explanation of a parable, it's got to be like that in all the other parables. So we'll move forward without much discussion about this particular parable that we've just read until we get to his explanation, because his explanation will be much better than mine would be. But here we have Jesus again before the multitudes, and he goes on and discusses with them another parable, also related to seed. But in this case, it's a mustard seed. And perhaps most of you are familiar with the parable of the mustard seed, because it's quite an impressive little parable, and it's much shorter than the last two that we've looked at. But it says in verse 31, another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Now, he's being specific. And before, it was just seed, but now he's saying a mustard seed. There's a specific purpose that he has in mind as he relates this parable to his disciples and to the multitude that are with him. It says, a mustard seed was what was sown in his field. And then he goes on in verse 32 to say, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, the herbs, not all plants. We know that the orchid has a much, is a much smaller seed than the mustard seed, but he's referring to herbs here, and we'll see that as he continues. Indeed, it's the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest of the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now, the birds are mentioned here. Remember what we talked about, expositional constancy? The birds are not good. The birds are evil in that first. So therefore, with that constancy in mind, this story that he's giving now, the birds must also be considered evil. Now that's a deviation from what many expositors have tried to explain with regard to this parable in the past and in Today's society as well, there are those who believe that the birds nesting in the branches are a good thing. I submit to you that if we're to be constant in our understanding of what Jesus is saying in all of these parables, then we must conclude that the birds are not good. Now, the mustard plant, in this case, grows very large, Almost like in a supernatural sense, it becomes a tree. Now, a mustard plant is not a tree, it's a shrub. And it can, in the Middle East, grow to 12 to 15 feet high. So it can be a substantially large plant, but it's not really considered a tree. That's not what Jesus is really saying here or focusing on. He's just saying the largeness of it. It started very small, and it went to become a very large plant. Now, Apply that to the church, and you know that the church started out very, very small. In the very first days of its existence, there were only 120 people in the upper room, but by the end of the day, there were over 3,000 people that were saved. So it grew exponentially, but it had very small beginnings. And then it had to spread from Jerusalem into all the uttermost parts of the world, and it did. So it became a very large entity. But the birds nesting in its branches, if the birds nesting in its branches isn't a good thing, then what does that mean? 
Well, simply put, it means that the enemy has crept in. Just like the enemy did in the first parable, the enemy attacks that which is being produced by the seed that was sown. And yes, there is a great deal of the world in the church. That's unfortunate. That's not a good thing. The church is in the world. That's a good thing. But keep in mind that from the very beginning, there were factions in the church. There were problems in the church. There was heresy being propagated in the church. It started back in the first century and it has continued to this day. If you look at the seven letters written in the book of Revelation that are attributed to the Lord who dictated these letters to the seven churches through John, the apostle, he wrote to those seven churches and each one of them had mostly good, except for two of them, but there was always something corrupt in those churches, every one of them but one. The church at Philadelphia had nothing apparently wrong within that church. It was a unique church that was written to the church at Philadelphia. One of the last churches in the list. And most expositors would say that it is representative of the true church. And in that letter to the Philadelphian church, Jesus promises that they will not suffer the persecution that is coming to all the world. The implication is that Philadelphia church is a church that will exist at the end times. But right after the Philadelphia church, he talks to the Laodicean church. And there's nothing good that's happening in the Laodicean church. So you see both good and evil in the churches throughout the history and especially in the last days. I submit to you that you can look around and you can see all kinds of birds nesting in the shrub. They're there. And it's not a good thing. But what Jesus is conveying is there is good in the fact that the tree did indeed become a good, solid, healthy tree. But there has to be an understanding that there is an attractiveness within that development of that tree to those who are not true to God's Word. And so it is. Paul even warned about that. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, Paul met with the Ephesian elders in Miletus on his way to Jerusalem. And it was there that Jesus, or rather Paul, tells his followers from Ephesus, terrible things are going to happen in the church. Troublous times are going to be coming. There will be those from within who will do things that are contrary to the Word of God. And also there will be those from without who will come into the church and corrupt. Those are birds. And that's what is going to happen, Paul says, within the church throughout the church age. And so it has been. You know, one of the things that really bothers me is the way that The church developed into a state organization. Happened in around 300 A.D. Constantine established the Christian church as the church of Rome. And ever since then, 
there has been a downward slide in terms of the amount of corruption that persisted within the church. It's no better today than it was in 300 A.D. or even in the middle era of the medieval times. Churches are just as corrupt today as they were from that point on. But the plant will survive. The true church, not an organization, but an organism. And Jesus is saying that there will be difficulties, there will be challenges, there will be corruption, there will be evil in the church, there will be secrets of all kinds of evil things within the church, in leadership as well as in the body general. But the point is, the church will continue. That's why Jesus so matter-of-factly said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The church will survive, but the church needs to know that there is trouble even within its own walls. We need to be observing what's going on. And just like with the tares and the wheat, that's a description of the saints of God alongside those who are not. Yes, it is true that in the church, there are people who are believers and there are people who are not. The Bible always talks about two types of individuals, saved, unsaved, white, black. I'm not talking about skin color. I'm talking about the difference between one or the other, but there's no in-between. There's no gray area involved with regard to the Lord's view of the church. You're either in or you're out. You're on or you're off. You're plugged in or you're unplugged. Tares and wheat are all that there are. My job as a pastor is to try to help everyone understand how to be wheat. And it's simple. It's believing in Christ in the work that He has accomplished on the cross for the saving of our souls. It's intended to be easy. It's intended to be accessible to all. Bottom line is this. God does not want anyone to perish. But He wants all to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the salvation that He alone can give and does. So are you in? Or are you out? Are you connected? Or are you disconnected? It's a heart issue. H-A-R-T, not H-A-R... Or H, I spelled it wrong. H-E-A-R-T, not H-A-R-D. A heart issue. And in this parable, again, the mustard seed is a growing, thriving church, but there is an unfortunate aspect of what is going on in the growth of that tree. And we need to recognize that. That's what Jesus is saying. It's consistent with what he has said before and what he will say further on. He goes on into 
the next parable quickly. He says in verse 33, Another parable he spoke to them, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now again, some expositors would argue, well, that's a good thing. Leaven grows in the lump, and that means the exponential growth of the church, all is good. They consider that to be an, a reference to the fact that the church will eventually be completely accepted in the world, and there will be no reason for any other religion, no reason for the agnostic, no reason for the atheist. Everyone will ultimately become believers. That's lie. That's straight from the pit of hell. You look around, and, and they were those who were teaching this, especially in the 19th century when things were looking like the Word of God was spreading throughout the world. Missionaries were being sent all over the place. People were turning to the Lord. There were great revivals, great renewals taking place in places like Wales, in the United States, in England, all over the world. There were people getting saved. But then World War I came along. And well, that was a bump on the road, but they got back into it and they thought, no, that's just a temporary uh, disturbance that we'll overcome and we'll get back to the business of spreading the gospel. Then World War II came along. The point of all this is they're wrong about this particular parable. It does not represent good things. Leaven is never, ever considered to be good from the Scriptures. Every time you look at the Old Testament and New Testament references to leaven, you find it to be an evil thing. It is a type of sin. Jesus talked about the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. Beware of the leaven, he said, of the scribes and Pharisees. Paul talked about leaven in the church. He said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that's not a good thing. That is bad for the church. Purge out, therefore, Paul says, that leaven. Get rid of that leaven. The church should not allow the leaven to ferment, to grow into the lump and take over. But Jesus is here saying that's the danger. A woman came and hid a little leaven in three loaves of meal. The key word there is hid. If that was the gospel, why would it be hidden? We're to be light. We're not to hide the light. We're to let the light shine. It's completely opposite of what Jesus intended for his church to be. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That is very, very serious and troublesome. So again, in this parable, Jesus is saying... This is going to be the case in the church. It does not destroy the church. It's a warning against allowing this to happen in the church. Again, let me repeat the parable. It's a short parable. It's one of the most well-known of all. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now Jesus ends speaking to the multitude. 
And in verse 34, it tells us all these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. And without a parable, he did not speak to them. That it might be fulfilled, which was again spoken by the prophet. And this is again the prophet Isaiah. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundations of the world. He's speaking in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So now he goes into the house. We're not told which house. It's assumed that it was Peter's house because that was apparently where he had begun his ministry in Capernaum where Peter lived. Verse 36 says, And Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Now he again told them two other parables here, but they want to have that one explained. They want to make sure they understand what it is. I don't know why they chose that one. Perhaps it was because it was the longer of the three, or perhaps it was the one that they were most curious about, but because some of them were familiar with the terms that he was using in regard to sowing seed and farming, but they didn't quite get the content. They didn't understand exactly what it was that Jesus was trying to convey in that parable. Later on, Jesus is going to ask, do you understand now? And they're going to say, "Uh uh-huh. Now, whether they did or not, we're not really told, but my suspicion is they just said yes, but they must have been still scratching their heads. The reason I argue with that point is just simply this. John, in his own writing, said they didn't understand anything that Jesus said until after the resurrection, and then they understood. Then it came to them. How is that possible? Well, it's possible by one only conclusion that you can make. The Spirit of God had come. The Spirit of God had baptized them. In the power of the Holy Spirit, they now had understanding. In the power of the Holy Spirit, who taught them truth, they came to the right conclusions about what Jesus had been saying all along. And now they were filled with the Spirit, and understanding and wisdom and and insight came to them by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way it can happen. If they had not received the Spirit of God, if there's anyone here who has not received the Spirit of God, then there is no way that you can understand these parables. Even though you might hear somebody explaining them, it's just just going to go over your head like it did those disciples of Jesus in that day. Paul tells us that the Word of God cannot be understood by natural man. It is spiritually discerned or understood. You need the Spirit of God. Well, how do I get the Spirit of God? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Have you accepted the salvation that He offers, the forgiveness of sins that He alone can give to anyone who would ask? If you've done that, then you've received the Holy Spirit. You already have the Spirit of God. You were regenerated by the power of the Spirit of God. He dwells in you. And because He dwells in you as a believer, then you are able to understand the things of God that other people who are only in their natural bodies, without any knowledge of the salvation that Jesus has given, you have an advantage. You can understand. I hope you do. And if you don't understand, then pray to the Spirit, pray to the Father through the Spirit to receive knowledge, understanding. He's there for that purpose. Remember, Jesus told His disciples, I'm going away. But I'm not going to leave you with orphans. I'm going to send the Spirit who will teach you all things. 
He will be your comforter. He will be your guide. We need to rely on Him. If we're born again, if we're believers in Christ, we have that already available. Now Jesus is again back in the house. His disciples have gathered around Him. He sent the multitude away, it tells us in verse 36, and went into the house, and His disciples came to Him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And He answered and said to them, He who sows a good seed is the Son of Man. Expositional constancy. He who sows is Jesus. Verse 38, the field is the world. Again, expositional constancy. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. You know, the Father in heaven, our Father, is not the Father of all. Those who are unbelievers have a different Father. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Read it again. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the wicked one. In John chapter 8, the Pharisees were arguing with Jesus. And Jesus told them flat out, you are the sons of the devil. Their argument, we have Abraham as our father. And then they went on to say, God is our father. What are you talking about? Jesus said, no, 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 you got it wrong. He has nothing to do with you because you have had nothing to do with him. They thought they were connected in the family by virtue of their genetics. Inheritors only by virtue of the fact that they were descendants physically of Abraham. Jesus is saying, sorry, you got it wrong. He's saying here the same. One is your father or the other. You can't make claim to being a son of that one if you are already the son of that one and remain so by sin and blindness and the closing of your ears to the truth. You're a son of the wrong kingdom. He goes on in his explanation in verse 39. He says, The enemy who sowed them is the devil. Make no mistake. Jesus believed in the devil. He named him Satan, the son of perdition, the the serpent, the dragon. They all refer to this one individual. Yes, he is real. Jesus believed him as a real individual entity. The enemy. Always the enemy. But keep in mind, he's not equal with Jesus. No way possible for him to be even close. 
He may be on an equal par with Michael the Archangel. It was Michael the Archangel who stood against Satan at the body of Moses, you remember. Satan wanted to take the body of Moses, and Michael was there saying, no, you can't do that. The Lord rebuke you. Michael, at that time, was not willing to even show himself to be willing to fight Satan at that particular juncture. He said, the Lord rebuke you. In the book of Revelation, though, Satan loses, and it's an angel of the Lord who ties him and throws him into the pit. Satan is real. He's the enemy of your soul. And he wants everyone to turn from their faith in God. Don't let him enter into your mind with such thoughts as that. The reapers, he says, are the angels. The harvest is the end of the age. So he gives all this detail. This is what these things represent constantly throughout all the parables. And then he says in verse 40, Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be gnashing of teeth and wailing in those days. Then the righteous will shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are you opening your ears to the truth of God? What he's saying is there is a harvest. He's telling the people who are there in that place that there is coming a day when the harvest will be done. And that day is, I believe, very close to being fulfilled. He says very specifically that there is a harvest to come. That harvest is a harvest of souls. And notice that he's sending his reapers. The angels are going to be involved in that harvest process. And those who are followers of Christ, those who have lived their lives believing in him and in the work that he has accomplished on the cross, they are the ones who will be gathered into the kingdom of God. And the rest, the tares, will be gathered up and they will be burned. This is a terrible picture of the judgment of Christ against the unbeliever. They will be cast into that place that he describes elsewhere as the lake of fire, as outer darkness, a place of torments, everlasting torment, a place where he says here there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be there. And I hope that you all have made that decision to follow after Christ so that you know that you won't be there as well. There is a decision that needs to be made. You're either in or you are out. And the only way that you can get in is by making that decision to accept Christ as your Savior. Otherwise, you've accepted Satan as your king, as your father. He's got you in prison. You're in chains until you're forgiven. And then you're set free. It's the Word of God that sets you free. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. Do you understand what he's saying there? 
You can't get there through any other way. You can't get there by following some other religion. You can't get there by thinking you've done good all your life. You can't get there unless you humble yourself and accept Him as the only way. The righteous will shine forth. Daniel chapter 12 talks about the righteous shining like the star. There is such great joy for those awaiting us who have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. Don't miss out on these things. The tears grew alongside the wheat until the harvest. It was then that they could easily distinguish between the wheat and the tares. If you know anything about wheat, when it matures, the head begins to sag or bow its head, if you will. And it's mature. It's ready for harvest. Bow your head. The Darnell stands upright. It doesn't have any wheat. It doesn't have any good fruit inside of it. It stands upright. It's easily recognizable at the end. But during the process of growth, they look identical. You and I can't tell the difference. Everyone here, as far as I'm concerned, are probably saved. But I want to tell you this. You are fooling God. He knows whether you're wheat or whether you're Darnell. It's simple for Him. And in the end, it will become known. So now, be like the mature wheat and bow the head to Him and be saved.